This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by the Spectator's data editor, Michael Simmons, and the editor of The Spectator, Fraser Nelson. For now. now. <laughs> oh, uh, Michael, there's been another exciting day at the COVID inquiry. Uh, this week it's the turn of the scientists after the political aids, so it's been Sir Patrick Valance and Sir Chris Whitty doing the double act. Um, what have we learned today? As you say, James, today was the turn of Sir Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, after Patrick Valance yesterday. And Whitty's evidence started off um, with this general theme that the inquiry has just pursued the whole time, which is, did we lock down quick enough, to which um, the inquiry's answer is no. And this came about today because when we had um, Sir Patrick Valance yesterday, it was mentioned that there was some disagreement between Sir Patrick thinking that we needed to act you know, straight away and Chris Whitty saying that, as it like you were a doctor administering um, an operation, you needed to explain kind of both sides, the downsides to the patients. So that came up and Hugo Keefe, the inquiry KC, was kind of hammering this point that did you talk too much about the, the downsides and, and did that lead to a delay? And that led to Witty saying something that was quite interesting that um, James picked up on in a blog today, which is... Chris Whitty said that lockdown just wasn't something in the in the imagination of scientists. It wasn't something that had been planned as a policy. And the inquiry kind of got into this point that sh- should scientists have come up with that? And, and Whitty basically said that it, it wasn't sort of within their remit to come up with that as an idea um, initially. And you, you see this in the early SAGE documents that they were not just not suggesting lockdown, they were, you know, actively against it. He called it a failure of imagination. Yeah, and that is really um, a, fam- a, fa- a phrase made famous by the nine one one inquiry, saying that you know the America was thinking of all these national. But nobody imagined that two guys would hijack a plane and fly into the twin towers. Now, if you look at our pandemic preparedness, the amount of money, millions and millions of pounds, we spent trying to work out what exactly we do if there was another flu outbreak or something similar, um, and we went so far as to to say that we were the best in the whole world at this because. Every country does a flu preparedness. You'd have summits where you'd exchange notes. And we thought we were the best. But the funny thing, of course, about COVID, it shows that no plan of attack survives um, contact with a viral enemy. And all the world, apart from Sweden, ended up discarding their pandemic plans and implementing lockdown. Now, here's what's quite interesting. Previously, any serious measure you take in a pandemic would be seen by the Pandemic Preparedness Committee for uh, how much damage would it cost? Cost-benefit analysis, a rational analysis. Everything that was conceivable would be put through. So we will do this because it's um, we, we think this would um, reduce the virus, but however it might cause this side effect and that side effect. Now, nobody had ever come up with lockdown until the Chinese implemented it in Wuhan. Nobody had ever come up with lockdown theory before. And all of a sudden, we have Neil Ferguson from Imperial coming up with his own um, models. So it was very hastily invented and went from abstract theory to absolute orthodoxy overnight. Now, Whitty's point, though he didn't relabor it, was that because our central policy ended up being one that we never ever in a million years thought we'd actually use. Nobody was sure about the costs or the benefits or even whether it was going to work or not. Now, that is, I think, one of the standout facts of um, the, the Western world's COVID response. 
But to me, if we are to live in a society that learns lessons, you need the inquiry to then come up with the obvious answer, well, did it work? Was this lockdown theory correct? Let's have a look at these non-pharmaceutical interventions, NPIs, find out what worked and what didn't. Its failure to show any interest in any of these questions, I think, is quite striking and came through today. Several times you really should have followed up on Witty's line of questioning, but they just didn't. And we, we had another example of this yesterday with Sir Patrick Valance, where they, they talked about eat out to help out. And that there's been a narrative around eat out to help out for a while that this was, you know, Rishi's big mistake, eat out to help the virus. Um, and the inquiry asked Sir Patrick Valance uh, about that. And he said that, you know, of course it would increase transmission. And that's kind of been turned in by some people into him saying it drove the second wave. But, you know, as we've covered on Coffee House loads of times, there's tons of data. I mean, you can look at hospital admission ratios, you can look at the ONS infection survey and deaths that show that Eat Out to Help Out just did not really increase cases at all. In fact, for a lot of Eat Out to Help Out, cases were shrinking. And this is something that the inquiry could definitively answer if it just wanted to look at the data. But it just doesn't seem to do that. It just asks for people's opinions or what they said at the time, rather than trying to get you know to a proper scientific answer about what went on. I suppose the defence of the inquiry is that at the moment it's just the evidence sessions and in fairness to them it's like, you know, this is what the remit of the inquiry has been. It's quite a broad-ranging one set up under the Inquiries Act and, you know, they have the scope to, to analyse all this. I was quite interested in the, in the evidence given by Sir Chris Woody, who of course remains in post as CMO, Chief Medical Officer, compared to Sir Patrick Valance, who has now left his department as uh, Chief Scientific Advisor. Do you think, Michael, that there's sort of a dislike discord, a slight tension perhaps between what they were saying? And do you think perhaps that, you know, the remit of the CMO is slightly different from the CSA in terms of uh, looking at the broader public health angle of all of this? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that it ca- came out slightly. And actually, Witty said that the, the disagreement between the two of them was kind of hammed up by Jeremy Farrer, um, who wrote a one of the pandemic books because he had to sell books and he said that the disagreements were actually a, a lot milder and I think that's just more it's just as you say a function of the rules that the chief scientific advisor is actually the only permanent member of SAGE and they oversee SAGE whereas Chris Whitty as medical officer has this um, this public health remit and he, he kept you know making this point to the under questioning to the to the KC that if you if you give somebody an operation or you recommend a medical treatment you you explain both sides and I think that was more of a public health role compared to the scientists who were were just saying if you do this this will happen who they use this defense which I think is quite a weak defense that they only ever answered what they were specifically asked which is why they didn't talk about economics or anything like that whereas medics saw they had a wider role looking at both sides I'm less inclined to cut the committees some slack with the remit, James. I'll tell you why. Because it's not within the remit to find every single rude word anybody ever used in a WhatsApp. Yet when they come across a rude word that Dominic Cummings used or, or um, anybody else, they absolutely revel in it. The KC will come time and time again like it's the most important thing you could possibly discover that so-and-so calls um, X, Y, and Z a blackguard or a villain or other words which we have to bleep out if we use them in the podcast. So they do have the remit to say, well, okay, Mr. Witty, um, did, do you think actually that, that, that this was effective advice? Do you regret you say we should have um, probably locked down earlier. Why do we say that? Do you believe a lockdown was effective? And there's so many follow-ups that don't take place. For example, in his written evidence um, yesterday, Patrick Valance was saying that um, he was that Boris Johnson was couldn't read science, couldn't read graphs, was was very easily confused, and whereas it was obvious that the interventions would clearly work. Now the committee could say, well, Sir Patrick, if it's clear 
Can you please enlighten us and point us to the studies that demonstrate that these things clearly worked? Because I would say that the biggest question is whether these things work at all. And if we keep operating on the premise that they did work, uh, then we risk missing the single biggest important question of the inquiry's remit to find out what worked, what didn't, so we can learn next time. And just a final question to you both. We obviously got Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock who expected to give evidence at the beginning of December. There are some who are perhaps pushing a sort of scientist versus politicians narrative. What would your response be to that in terms of people suggesting that, oh, they didn't understand the science enough and that if only we listened to the experts more, we would have been much better placed? You can see that narrative developing, but it, it sort of misses the point because, as Fraser was saying, it, it's not about you know who recommended what. It's about what we did and whether it worked so we know for next time. But also... It's not as clear cut as the scientists said one thing and the politicians did the other. It was it seems more actually that politicians were being rightly skeptical about, you know, certain bits of advice and then other people within the government machine would use um, advice or modelling um, selectively to push, you know, what they thought was their aim. And I, I don't think we'll get that out of any of the politicians' evidence when they come because it's just clear that they're go- Boris is going to be asked, you know, why he said whatever on WhatsApp or why he, you know, said let it rip and things like that, which is not going to teach us anything. It might, you know, make some splashes, but it's not going not to tell us anything useful. Yeah, I think this inquiry will be useful only insofar as it can reveal evidence, documents, what we didn't know. Uh, one of the things that Michael and I keep talking about, actually, is just how we'd love to get our hands on these models. We'd like to see what models were published, what the assumptions were used, so we can look back in retrospect to find out were they correct. And that's, if the inquiry manages to do this as a side effect of its narrative, because let's not forget, it's going to be going on for how long, Michael? They've got a date in 2026, haven't Yeah, they? they've said they're, they're going to be taking witnesses at least into 2026. And they're going to cost a quarter of a billion pounds, etc. It's just, a, and even then, they can't even get us, can't afford a stenographer to actually be in the building. I mean, we had the amazing spectacle today of Chris Whitty being asked to slow down because a stenographer was working at home and then couldn't record what he was saying fast enough. So you think for a quarter of a billion quid, they'd be able to come up with Hansard levels of... Um, of transcription. But um, it seems that there are some things that money can't buy. Thanks, Fraser. Thank you, Michael. And thank you for listening to Coffee House Shots.